Last time, we went through the first 11 verses of chapter 1 of the book of Acts. Remember, Jesus is now meeting with his disciples for the last time, apparently on Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. He shares with them many things in that last encounter. He ends his comments to them with a phrase that we have recorded for us here in this book of the Acts that we have before us, where he says, But you shall receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then the Bible tells us, Luke records for us, that he was taken out of their presence, ascended into heaven, and they were gazing into heaven, watching him ascend out of their sight, and then they find that there are two angels, mentioned here as men, standing with them, who said to them, Men of Galilee, verse 11, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, shall come so in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. He left in a miraculous fashion ascending into the clouds, which probably were the Shekinah glory clouds, not the average cumulus clouds that we have here in Maine, but in any case, he ascended. This was a remarkable thing for them to have observed. But what's even greater in what Jesus has said to them with regard to their ministry, to go into all the world, Everywhere, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was quite a tall order. They didn't really have the capability of doing that on their own, in their own power, with their own intellect or abilities. But he had promised them something more, and even greater still, important And it's important for us as well. In that phrase, in verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Friends, the work of the Holy Spirit is not done yet. He's still got a great deal of work. How do I know that? Because we're still here. We are His church. When we receive Christ as our Savior... The Spirit of God regenerated us. He sealed us with a seal of promise. His Spirit lives in us who believe. This is the truth of the Word of God to us. And when we act on that truth, when we trust in what the Word of God declares with regard to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then things begin to happen. And I believe that's still the same today as it always has been. He wants to use His church in these last days as well. He had told His disciples before His having gone to the cross that He was going to go away. And though He was going away, He was going to send them a comforter, another one like Himself. And that word in the Greek, another, is another of the same kind. There are two words in the Greek language that talk about this concept. An other can either be heteros, which is another of a different kind, or alos, which is another of the same kind. He used that word. So he's saying, one like myself will come, and he will be your comforter. He will be your guide. He will teach you all the things that you have been taught by me, Jesus said. He will instruct you. He will guide you. He will be your comforter. He will come alongside you. He will be your helper. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church. But he's also working beyond the church, through the church, and in the world today, drawing men to himself. That includes when you and I were unbelievers, he drew us. It was the work of the Holy Spirit that did that. You must acknowledge that fact, because that's what the Word of God says. It's the Spirit who draws all men to the Lord. And he convicts those who are outside the faith. He convicts of sin and righteousness of judgment. Those are the things that the Spirit does in the world. But in the church, you and I, in the works 
that we are to do, He is the one who empowers us to do those works. And that's one of the wonderful things that they now are being told by the Lord as He ascends into glory that they are going to be endued with power. Power to do things that they could not have done otherwise without the help of the Holy Spirit. That's the beauty of this wonderful book that we have before us. It's a revelation of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of every believer, not just the apostles, but you and I, every person who has accepted Christ as his or her Lord and Savior, have the Holy Spirit to empower us. We need to let that sink in. And we give you this testimony from the Word of God that says it is available still. And we're not going to get to that portion of the Word of God today that speaks specifically to that. But we're going to take a glimpse of actually what took place before they received that empowerment. Remember, Jesus had met with them over a period of 40 days on several different occasions. We talked about that last week, that he appeared to Peter all by himself. He appeared to James also, his half-brother. He appeared to the apostles He appeared to 500 at one time, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He made it known that he was raised from the dead. And that's why Luke starts this wonderful letter with the phrase that we have infallible proof that he was indeed raised from the dead. It's unquestionable. There's no doubt in the mind of anyone who would seriously look at what God's Word says. Not only is there infallible proof, not only is there power to do that which we cannot do ourselves, but that promise that was given to them is also given to us. That's what we will be looking at as we move forward in the study of this book today. But here in this remaining portion of chapter 1, I want us to focus on this one thing. He's coming again. He's coming again. Now for them, Jesus told them, that wait until you receive that promise. They knew what the promise was. He told them the promise of the Father was the Spirit of God coming upon them. He mentioned it here in this portion that we just read. That was their expectation, that the Holy Spirit would come. They didn't have a clue in what manner the Holy Spirit would come. They had no idea what to expect. All that Jesus had told them is, Go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for that which I have promised you. And it will happen in its time. You know, when I think about my experience as a believer in Christ Jesus, I've been waiting for the Lord's return. Every day of my Christian walk, I look up and say, Lord, come quickly. (laughs) And that's a good thing. Remind yourself that He is coming. You know, we don't have the promise that the Holy Spirit will come. He already has come. But we also now have the promise that Jesus is coming back. He had said so in this portion. The angels, remember, had told the disciples, He will come in like manner as you saw Him go into heaven. And so it will be He will return. The song that we sang today, Even so come, Lord Jesus. Oh, that's so precious to me. I hope it is to you. An expectation of the return of Jesus Christ should be on our hearts on a regular basis, a daily basis, moment by moment. An imminent return. It may not be today. I don't care if it is. I know that I trust in my Lord that it will be in His time, but I hope with an expectancy, not a hope that says, gee, I think so, but a hope that expects the reality of the promise that He is indeed coming. If it isn't today, well, so be it. There's more work to be done. I believe that there is a time when there will be a completion of the promise of God to bring unto Himself the fullness of the Gentiles into the church. Paul talked about that fullness of the Gentiles. It's not yet come in. And since it has not yet come in, then there must still be work to do. And if there's work to do, then that includes all of us to be a part of that work. That's what He called the church to do. So we have this expectation, we have this hope, we have this promise, and it is real to me. I hope it is to you too. So that was what they were expecting. The Holy Spirit was coming. They didn't know what to look for. They just knew they needed to go to Jerusalem and hunker in until the time when He would be revealed. It must have been a great time of anticipation. 
Have you ever waited for something, even if you didn't know exactly what it was going to look like? Have you ever thought, oh, when's it going to happen? I hope it happens soon. It's been promised. Have you waited too long? And you said, I guess it's not going to happen after all. Listen, I've been a believer for over 40 years. I never have that kind of thought in my, in my mind. I know it's going to happen. I don't doubt it at all. I've always expected it to be an imminent return. They were expecting an imminency. They didn't know exactly when. All Jesus said was, wait. And so they did. They went into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. They went into what was referred to in this passage that we'll be looking at today as the upper room. Let's take a look at what they were doing there. In chapter 1, verse 12, it says this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, a little over half a mile. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. So apparently, they had already been using this upper room. Many people believe it's possible that this upper room that they were returning to might have been the same upper room as when Jesus met with them on the night of the Last Supper. Many believe it to be Mary, the mother of John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, that was her building, her home. That's a good possibility. We are told in Acts chapter 12 that they did assemble together in Mary's house in Jerusalem. It's a very good likelihood that that might have been the case. We're not sure, but it does say the upper room as though it were something specific that anybody during those days might have known, oh, he's referring to that room. He says they went into the upper room where they were staying. And then Luke identifies who they were. He gives a list of names. And they happen to be, 11 names in particular, the apostles, those who remained. Remember, Judas is no longer the apostle. He had taken a different path. So he's excluded, obviously, from this list. And we'll see why in a moment. It says in verse 13, they were staying in this upper room, and he names them Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Those four were the inner circle, by the way. They were the ones that saw a lot of activity with Jesus that others did not see. But he goes on to say, and also Philip and Thomas. These are names you're familiar with. Remember, Philip and Thomas were with the Lord. It was Thomas who said, when Lazarus had died, let us go with him and die with him also. It was Thomas who said, hey, unless I see the wounds in his hands and his chest, I will not believe. It was Philip who said, Lord, what do you mean? You're going away and we know the way. How can we know the way? That's when Jesus said to Philip, Have you not known me, Philip? That I am and the Father are one? I and the Father are one. And I go to prepare a place for you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Do you know these things to be true? These are the men who walked with him for three and a half years. They saw every detail of things that he did, the miracles that he performed, the words that he spoke. Then there was Bartholomew and Matthew. We don't know much about Bartholomew. Matthew wrote the gospel that we have by that name. Matthew was also known as Levi. Very likely he was a Levite, a descendant of Levi. But he was a tax collector. He left everything to follow Jesus. He is now among those who are waiting for this wonderful promise of the Holy Spirit. There was also James, the son of Alphaeus, in other places known as Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, not Iscariot, but Judas, the son of James. Now, several of these men had different names as well as the names that are presented here. But in every case, their names are recorded for us in several different places. Luke gives it to us in his own gospel. Paul gives us a list of the twelve apostles as well. And so does Matthew. But they all are those that Jesus had selected. He had told them, have I not chosen 
all of you, and that was including Judas Iscariot, he made up originally one of the twelve, and then he said, but one of you is the devil. He knew what he had selected. He knew what he had chosen. It was for the purpose that was greater than anything that they would have expected or understood, but it was for the purpose of fulfilling the prophetic word of God, that Judas was among those. And we'll see that as we move forward. But here are the eleven who are remaining. But it's not only them. As well, there are others. It says in verse 14, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You have to stop here and think about this. Mary, Jesus' mother, was there. You know, there are those who follow after the Catholic teaching of Mary having been assumed into heaven, that she was a virgin perpetually. The Word of God does not support that doctrine of Mary. Maryology in the Catholic Church is a very dangerous, very dangerous doctrine. I don't understand how they can see such things when you look at the Word of God, if they were to look at the Word of God, Perhaps they might see that that can't be so. And it tells us this is one of the places where it does mention that it was Mary who was there anticipating something, right? She was part of the group that was waiting for the return of the Holy Spirit or the appearing of the Holy Spirit. She was wanting to be a part of that which would become the church. She herself referred to God as the one that was her salvation. She recognized that she was a sinner. She was not perfect. She was no different than you and I. But we need to remember, she's held in a very high place within the Word of God, but never to be worshipped. She's not a co-redemptress with Jesus Christ. Some even go to the extent that she was hanging on the cross on the opposite side of Christ, when he hung on the cross. That is ridiculous. There's no scripture that talks of those things. But we have here, she is present. Not only is she present, but Jesus' half-brothers are also present. And sisters. At least the brothers are mentioned, and I'm assuming that there were others. What about the other women? The other women were mentioned by Luke elsewhere. There was Mary Magdalene, there was a, a, a bunch of other women that went with Mary Magdalene to the tomb. They were all there present. It tells us in verse 15 that in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and altogether the number of names was about 120. And I want to stop there to bring that to our attention. There was a large group in that upper room. 120 or so. Luke says about 120. Souls were anticipating this promise that Jesus had made to them. They're waiting. They're praying. They're excited about the prospect of what it is that will happen on that approaching day, whenever that day might be. They had no idea when. All Jesus said was, wait. We know because we can look back historically. But they had no clue. But I want to bring you back to this one particular phrase that should be, I believe, our focus for this morning. In verse 14, it says, These all continued with one accord. With one accord. That phrase in the original language is a combination of two words in the Greek language. It means with, and it also means the same mind. They put that combination of words together in one single word. We paraphrase it or translate it with one accord. And that's what it means. They were united in their desire to wait upon the promises that were made to them. They were convinced they were with one mind. They had a love for one another. They had a unity among each other. They had commitment that they would wait according to what Jesus had said. And they had a task that was given to them. 
go into all the world. So they were with one accord in all of these things. I remember when I first became a believer, we were living in the Brunswick area, Thompson at the time, and when I first read that passage, I looked at that and I said, with one accord. You know, at the same time, I had been thinking about buying a new car. And one of the cars that I was considering was a Honda Accord. And I was going to buy a Honda Accord just for the purpose of having a license plate that said, with one on it. So it would be, with one Accord. I thought that was cute. It didn't work out that way. They were too expensive for me. I'm kind of glad of that, by the way. I, uh, I, I didn't really want to go into a foreign market, so I wanted to keep my Chevrolet devotion. So I bought an Impala instead. With one accord. With one accord. What does that mean to you? Does that apply to any of us? Should it apply to any of us? Well, I submit to you that it applies to all of us. That's what we should be in this kind of attitude with the time that we have left. With one accord. In anticipation of His return. With one accord. In the way we minister to one another. In the way we relate to one another. We are to love one another as He loved us. And we are to do what He has commanded us. In one accord or with one accord. That's the message that God wants to bring to us. We need to make sure that we are a body of Christ that does indeed represent Jesus well in these last days. And we can't do it if we're not with one accord among the brethren. If there is division, if there is any disparity, if there is any strife in the body, that is not what God wants for His church. Brothers and sisters, we must realize that it is imperative for us in these last days that we exercise that very concept that is presented here. We're not waiting for the Holy Spirit, but we are waiting for the Lord's return. And we must be with one accord as we wait. We're not having to do what they did in those days. We're not facing the same challenges that they would have to face. But we have the same Holy Spirit that they were about to receive. And though they did not have the Spirit of God manifest until a few days later, they still were in one accord waiting for that promise. We have promises that God has given to us. And when we are in one accord, when we are with one accord together in that anticipation of His return, in that anticipation of the promises that He has made for us, then we are doing what the Spirit of God wants us to be doing I have no doubt that they were, all of them, all 120 of them, right on the same page with all of these things. And so should we be. Now, the last portion of the book of Acts chapter 1 speaks of an event that took place prior to the receiving of the promise. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. But as we move into this portion of Scripture, I want you to understand that does not mean that they did not have the Holy Spirit already. The twelve apostles were with Jesus after His resurrection in a room where He had come and appeared before them. And when He spoke to them before He left their presence, He said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And John tells us that when he said that, he breathed on them to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, my question to all of us here is, if Jesus said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathed on them to effectively accomplish that, did they receive it or not? And my suggestion is very strongly, yes, they received the Holy Spirit at that moment. So that means they were born again in that setting. At least the twelve who were there, or the eleven, I should say, because one of them was missing, obviously. But do you realize the import of that? These men, this group of eleven men, are already born again. They already have been 
regenerated by the Spirit of God. The Bible talks about the Spirit of God, and I've mentioned this last time, in three different ways. He is with us, epi. He is in us, in the Greek word en. And he is upon us. And I forgot what the Greek word for that is, to be frank with you. But it is there as a separate word used by Jesus. He will come upon you. He told his disciples before these events, he is with us and he told them that he will be in you. So there are three functions of the Holy Spirit described with those prepositional phrases. We need to realize that. He is with us even though before we became believers, we had the Holy Spirit with us, drawing us to Himself. And He's in us when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. And He comes upon us to do work, service for His glory. Remember, the Spirit of God never, ever leads us into any activity that does not glorify the Lord. That's His purpose. Only to show forth the fact that Jesus is Lord. Only to glorify Him. Never to glorify Himself. He never speaks of Himself. Always speaks of Jesus. Always manifests the power that He intends to manifest in the church for the one purpose of bringing glory to the Lord. We must never ever forget that. But we also must never ever forget that He is present in the world today and He's doing the same thing that He has always done in the world, reaching the lost, bringing them to the Lord. And He's doing the same thing today as He did in that one day when Jesus said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He comes into us at that moment we believe. And He's still doing the same thing today that He did then when He comes upon the believer for service. So that's what they were expecting. That's what they were looking for. That's what they didn't know exactly how it would manifest or what would be the result of it. But they knew one thing. Jesus had promised it. And so he says in verse 15 again, And in those days Peter stood in the midst of the disciples and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Let's stop there and think about what Peter is saying. He's saying that the Spirit of God spoke. It was David who wrote the words. But it was the Spirit of God who spoke the words to David's mind and heart, and he put them on the page with the pen that he had available to write them. This is a manifestation of what we call the inspiration of God and the inerrancy of His Word. He has both inspired the writing of the Word of God. Paul tells us later, all Scripture is given by the breath of the Lord. All Scripture. Everything that we have here in front of us is Scripture. In Paul's day, he didn't have this entire book that we have. But what he did say is that all Scripture is given by God for purpose, for instruction, for doctrine, important things, needful things. We have the Word of God because God wanted us to know what His will is for us. He wanted us to know what we are to do in these last days. He wanted us to know what to expect with regard to His return. He wanted us to know how we can live for Him in a way that will please Him. He gave it to us. It's inspired by the Word of God. Absolute inspiration and inerrancy, without error. That's what Peter's saying here. Men and brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. It had to be fulfilled. Jesus had said the same thing. All Scripture must needs be fulfilled. And it was. And it is being fulfilled. Still in our day. 
there's yet to be a fulfillment of many things that have been recorded in the Word of God. And we have that great expectation that He will indeed fulfill all that has not yet been fulfilled because of the fact that He did fulfill everything up till this point exactly as it has been written. A literal understanding of God's Word is so very, very important. And so many churches today have chosen a different path. They choose not to represent the Word of God in such a way as to examine it in the way that He tells us we need to. Think of it. You spiritualize everything, and then you have nothing to stand on. That's where much of the church has gone. But I submit to you, we need to stay firm in our commitment to this precious Word of God. And when it says what it says, we believe what it says, and we live as though we expect it to happen. Because that's the only way to understand the wonderful work of God in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter recognized that. He said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. Now, he's going to tell us what scripture that is that he's referring to in a moment. But notice that Peter believed in the inerrancy of the Holy Spirit's presentation of the Word through the writers of the Word of God, including David the king. Because it's David that he's going to quote here. But he says, it's concerning Judas. How he understood that to be so can only be that the Spirit of God revealed it to him. He couldn't have made that understanding from his own intellect, his own understanding. Have you ever read through the Psalms and said, oh, that applied to Judas, or that applied to Paul, or that applied to this person or this event? You know, sometimes we can do that. But some of the things that are recorded in the Word of God, I oftentimes wonder how in the world could he have gotten that from that scripture. And then I realized, well, of course, it's by the Spirit of God. And he did that with Peter here. This scripture had to be fulfilled. And it's all about Jesus. It's all about Judas. Remember, Jesus himself had said, search the scriptures. They speak of me. They do. The writer of Hebrews says, God, in sundry times, in diverse ways, spoke through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken through his Son, Jesus Christ. The, writer, the, the book of Revelation tells us that Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about him. Every word in the Old Testament and the New Testament somehow links together the very truths that God wants us to know about his Son, Jesus Christ, and about his promises to us as believers. But he says in verse 17, this, because he's talking about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. In verse 17 he says, For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Judas was one of the twelve. There's no question about that. Jesus had chosen him. And Peter here is acknowledging the fact that he was among us as one of those chosen twelve men that he called his apostles. There's no question about the fact that he had a part in this ministry. But then he goes on to say in verse 18, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. It's interesting that Matthew tells the same story in a much different way. Is there contradiction? No. Just a different point of view. Peter here says he fell headlong and his bowels gushed out. Matthew says he went and hung himself. Well, the explanation probably is one of two competitive ideas. One is that he did hang himself on a tree, but the rope broke and he fell into a precipice upon some rocks and his guts spilled out. So both are right. He hung himself and his guts fell out. The other issue is with regard to the money. Here, Peter says, the money was used by him to buy a field. It says in verse 18, now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. Now we know in the gospel record, Judas went to the priest's and he said, I'll lead him to, I'll lead you to him. 
How much will you give me? They offered 30 pieces of silver. He said, I'll take it. So he showed them. He came back and threw the money down before them and said, I'm so sorry that I did what I did. It was wrong for me to do this. And by the way, that was not true repentance. That was just regret. He had already committed to it. The deed that he had committed was the reason that he needed to be replaced. Not because he died, but because of the deed that he committed. He did not repent of that. He went and hanged himself in total remorse over what he had done, yes. But it did not save him. Judas was not saved. Jesus himself had said, Have I not chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil? Remember I mentioned that? That's what Jesus' words were. He had selected Judas for a different purpose, not for salvation, but for the purpose of fulfilling all the word of God that spoke of his death. But Judas didn't actually pay for that field. He threw the money down before the chief priests and elders. They took the money and bought the field. So, is there a discrepancy again in between Matthew 27 and this presentation by Peter? And my answer to you is again, no, of course not. Because it was Judas who provided the money to buy the field. So, in either case, both records are just different points of view to present the same facts. Judas committed suicide. And the money was used to buy a field. And it tells us in verse 19, that it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, akaldema, that is to say, field of blood. It's an Aramaic phrase meaning field of blood. And then he goes on in verse 20 to quote two portions of the Psalms that he had referred to in verse 16. Now he gives specific details about what he was referring to that was the inspired word of God that the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David concerning Judas. He says in verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, and this would be Psalm 69, verse 25, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. And the second is like it. He says in a reference to Psalm 109, verse 8, Let another take his office. Several of us, when we don't like the president that we have, have quoted Psalm 109, verse 8. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but it really applies. Oh, Lord, let another take his office. Well, we have a president right now that we can probably think about praying that same prayer. But in this case, it applied to Judas. Both of those passages, Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8, applied to Judas. By the Spirit of God, Peter pulls this out. So don't ever say that Peter did not have the Spirit of God as he makes this next part of the story what has to happen, what takes place. And there are many who speculate about this particular passage who think that Peter made a mistake here. I'm not among those who do. There are many who are on one side of the fence of the fence or the other. I happen to be on this side of the fence that Peter was in line with the will of the Father in this particular action. So let's read on. Verse 21 says, Therefore, of those men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So he's saying to the 120, and remember, they are all with one accord. This is not something that Peter has just dreamt up. They've apparently discussed this. They have given thought and prayer to this. They are, remember, in prayer and supplication. They were asking the Lord to lead them. They were wanting the Lord's will to be done. I see no problem with what they are doing in this particular setting. And he says, they proposed two. The first, Joseph called Bosibus, who was also surnamed Justice, and Matthias. Very similar to Matthew. Matthias. 
They both had been followers of Jesus ever since the time when John was baptizing in the Jordan. When Jesus first became known to them, they were among those who followed after Jesus everywhere he went, both in Judea and in Galilee. They were present as the twelve apostles were at the time when Jesus broke bread and and fed the 5,000 plus women and children. They were present when Jesus healed the lepers. They were present when the paralytic was able to get up and take his bed and walk. They were present when the man who was blind now could see again. They were present and they saw all of those things that Jesus had done. They were part of those who were considered his disciples. Now, there was a time, according to John, when some of his disciples left Jesus because of one of the things that Jesus said regarding his flesh and blood. These men were not among those who left. They stuck with him. They followed after him, even unto his death on the cross, and they recognized the fact that he was indeed raised from the dead. They knew all of these things as well as the apostles did, because they were there. These two men, out of all of those disciples, were chosen to represent God as one of the twelve apostles. Judas' place had to be filled. One of the main reasons for that is because of what Jesus had said to his twelve apostles, that when he comes back during his kingdom reign, the twelve apostles would be seated upon twelve thrones ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. That's a very Jewish thing. Now, don't get me wrong, they weren't exclusively Jewish. They were Christian men who are part of the church, even though they were selected by the Lord to have that particular responsibility. But there were twelve that had to be sitting upon twelve thrones, reigning over the twelve tribes of Israel. Now there's only eleven. Judas had deferred his privilege, and now they had to replace him. So now they're choosing one of these two men. Who is it, Justice? Or is it Matthias? Matt. Well, the method that they chose to determine that is the thing that is in question among a lot of theologians. Proverbs 16 ends that chapter with an interesting statement. The casting of lots is of the Lord, and its decision is of the Lord. God blesses the casting of lots in the Old Testament. He gave that as a means by which they could determine God's yes or no answers. And he had a couple of different ways to do that. One of them was by casting lots. And we find the casting of lots done in like Joshua's case where he was casting lots to determine who was going to get which portion of land in the nation of Israel and Canaan. And we also see that there was an Uman and Thummim were two stones in the breastplate of the high priest. And in a sense, that's the same idea. It is a way for them to determine the decision of God in any given set of matters, where the high priest would be asked to take one or the other of the two stones, and they probably were two stones, one black and one white, and he pulled out a stone without knowing which one he was pulling out, and the white one would be yes, the black one would be no, and so that was how God answered through the high priest who was considered to be God's spokesperson. Well, we don't have a high priest in this age except for that one who was raised from the dead. He is our high priest. And there is no place in the Word of God, New Testament, where the casting of lots was considered to be an activity that we should be taking into consideration. Yes, that's true. But here, these are Jewish men and women gathered together, praying, seeking God's will, asking God for help, and they are doing a Jewish 
thing. The Spirit of God had already dwelt into the lives of at least 11 of them, but He hadn't come upon any of them. And yet, I believe it was the Spirit of God who directed them in this method that they have chosen, because it was the method that they knew at the time. Don't discredit them for having made a bad choice. And there are those who say, well, the reason that this could not have been God's purpose is because the Apostle Paul came later, and he should be the one who is going to be among the twelve. He is the twelfth apostle. Well, quite frankly, Paul called himself the apostle to the Gentiles, So he's not going to be sitting on a throne ruling over one of the tribes of Israel. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. He called Peter an apostle to the Jews. An apostle to the Jews. He made a distinction. Later on in this book, in chapter 15, I believe it is, Luke talks about the twelve apostles. Not talking about including Paul in that list. So Luke, the writer of this book, confirms that it was his opinion that the one that they select did indeed become one of the twelve. So there are many other examples that we can use, but I want to just understand this one thing. God does not condemn what is being done here. There's nowhere in the Word of God that says, oh, you made a mistake, you shouldn't have done that. The Holy Spirit would have, I believe, said something about that if it had not been the right thing to do. So here we have, again, two opinions. I offered you mine. I believe that this was the right thing at that time for them and the right method at that time that they had available to them. So it says in verse 24, And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the other eleven apostles. So there you have it. They were with one accord in this matter. There was nobody who said, hey, wait a minute, we can't do that. The Holy Spirit hasn't come upon us yet, so this would be out of line for us to move in this direction. None of that. They were in one accord or with one accord in this matter. They were with one accord in the matter of continuing in prayer and supplication because they wanted to know God's will. They wanted to have God move in their lives. They wanted to see that which was promised to them become a reality. They didn't know what it was, but they knew that they were hungry for it. They desired it with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They wanted to experience the fullness of what God had to offer. They were with one accord in this. They were with one accord with regard to their relationship to each other. They were bonded together in love. They had an experience. They all had seen the risen Savior. He is the glue that held them together. And He's the glue that holds the church together today as well. Those who believe are those who are convinced that Jesus was indeed the one and only one who can save us from our sins. We, along with them, are the ones who have accepted the work of Christ on the cross and the fact that God proved His acceptance of it by raising Him from the dead. We need also to be with one accord in much the same way. That same love, that same unity, that same mindset, the same commitment to the very Word of God that says, this is what I want you to do. Go out and do it and live out your lives completely satisfied in the fact that God is with you and He is in you and He has come upon you to do the things that God asks of you to do. Be committed to the task that God has given to you. Well, what is that task, you might say? Simple. Jesus said, I give you one command. Love one another. As I have loved you. Love one another. Can you do that? Is that possible? But Lord, I don't really get along with that particular person very well. 
rubs me the wrong way, Lord. I have a problem with the way he or she does things. The things that he or she says. I have a problem with some of the things that he or she believes. I have a problem with the fact that she's even here. Is she really a Christian? Is he really a believer? I don't even know that. How can I love? The only way you can love is by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how it's done. But we must let there be no division among us. Let there be no schism in the body of Christ. My job as a pastor is to present the Word of God to you in such a way as to give you that definite commitment that is being asked of you here this morning to love one another even as Christ loved you. Is that too much to ask? It is if you don't rely on the Holy Spirit to give you the strength to do so. Because you're not required to like that person. You're required to love that person. There's a difference. And you can only love that person if you don't like that person by the power of the Lord in you who does love that person. Love him or her through the Spirit of God. That way there is no division. That way there is no issue that cannot be resolved. Relationships can be broken, yes. But it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that they are mended. And I suggest to all of us here today, if there is any relationship that remains undealt with, with a brother or sister in the family of God that you have had issues with, go to that one. Is it time for you to ask for forgiveness? Then ask for forgiveness. Is it it time for you to forgive? Then forgive. Do it now and let the Word of God prove Himself itself to you and through you. They cast their lots. We don't have to cast lots. We've been given something much, much better. They'll see that in chapter 2 when we get to that portion of Scripture next week. Chapter 2 sets the stage for all the church to live in such a way as what we have just talked about now. Can't do it without Him. I don't want to do it without Him. Do you?